We need to go to the loo. Can I, can you can certainly do that. Okay. So, uh, hi everybody. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm in the office of my friend and colleague, Jean Chalabi. Jean, how are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. And uh, what is the view we have from here? We're in, I guess we could say, East Central London, right? Yes. And we've got what looked like some project housing, maybe? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the view is one of the perks of my job. <laughs> because on the far right, we can see the London Eye. Yep. And then moving east, uh, we have a few gaps. We have the shard. Which the shard is surprisingly good. I thought I'd yeah. hate it, but it's not it's as beautiful. bad as I expected. Yeah, it's it's I, well, I like it. I like it. St Paul's is blocked by this building. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the Barbican, I guess. Yes, that's right. the Barbican. And just on the left, this project, I think it's called the Talkie Walkie. Talkie Walkie. The Talkie, because it has the shape of Talkie Walkie. And we see a few other landmarks in between. But these are the key, key landmarks. And yeah. it's, it's very nice. And in the evening, when the city lights up, yeah. it's, it's very nice. Really nice. So yeah, when I had to stay late at night, it <laughs> there are <laughs> compensations. Yes, there are compensations to, uh, and then you got the building of Satsen as well, which uh, is a satellite company dealing with uh, uh, navigation satellites and things like this. So, Interesting. And of course, we're very close to the Karl Marx Library. We are. We are used to close to the pub where Lenin, not Lenon, Lenin, <laughs> uh, used to drink. Apparently. I heard he was taught English by an Irish professor and so had an Irish accent when speaking English. I've never been able to establish whether there were any recordings of Lenin yeah. speaking English. Which pub did he uh, go to? I didn't know about the yeah, Lenins. Yeah, you know the, the Three Kings yeah. pub. Opposite that, yeah. there's a pub, I forget its name, but it's known informally as the Lenin and Stalin. Mm. It's sort of a yuppie. Pub. Okay. It's not a very Lenin yeah, 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 pub. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, we're here in a very interesting kind of political part of, of London. And uh, Jean, you just mentioned a satellite company nearby. Now, uh, one of the areas of your work that I'm familiar with, that you're very prominent in, is in what we might call international communications, yeah? Yes, Especially hopefully. television, but international yeah. communications. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. That's when you're not being head of department mm -hmm. of sociology and <laughs> staring mm -hmm. out every now and then at a shower for inspiration. Absolutely, looking at the London light, city lights. Yeah. Um, currently, well, I started on TV channels, international TV channels. Mm -hmm. We can talk about this now. I'm working on uh, uh, TV formats. So formats is all the programs that is being adapted from one country to another. Yeah. And that's everything from game shows through to football, yeah? Well, it has become everything, but it was not always this, this everything. So it started uh -huh. with, uh, with script sales in the 20s, 30s, radio, radio novellas sometimes. The Cuban radio novellas were sold as well. But in television started, in, I think I uncovered the first uh, TV format deal between a guy called Morris Winnick, he was an impresario, and the BBC for a uh, show called It Pays to Be Ignorant. It Pays to it Be pays Ignorant? <laughs> Sounds like the story of my life. Yeah, yeah, well, my <laughs> yeah it pays to be ignorant. And it was uh, Ignorance is Bliss was the British translation. It was basically a panel show. Then came What's My Line, and then a uh, third one, which I can't remember off, and then This Is My Life. So they were the first. And these came from the US from to the here. US, usually New York radio stations, earlier yeah. New York radio stations or networks, and this this was acquired by the BBC the first time, say, 19, I think What's My Life was the first format 
requires a, agreed to pay for what we call a packaging mm. and not the script. Right. There was a legal dispute between the, the rights holders, very interesting legal the, interesting legal disputes between the right holders and the BBC. So why should mm. we pay for a part of a game called What's My Line, which was invented 100 years ago, something like this. 20 questions was the other one, that's the one. 20 oh, questions, 20 questions, one, 20 okay. Questions. But they're saying, this is a Victorian part of game, why was the packaging? But, I mean, the argument says, you know, whatever the, the origins of the game, you know, this is something that, you know, it has been created by this radio network in the, in the US, and therefore, uh, you have to pay rights. And that's, that's the invention of format rights. When a format, yeah. you only pay for the, for the idea, for a brand, whatever it is, who wants to be a millionaire or a game show. So we started with game shows. And for many, many years, up to the, for the 1970s, 80s, to the mid-90s, on most formats travel from the States to the rest of the world and wear game shows. Mm. They want blind dates or what, dating game, I think it was in the States, blockbusters. Uh, all this, uh, there's a lot of shows whereby uh, Mark Goodson, mm -hmm. I think is an unsung American hero because he has <laughs> invented a lot of huge, you know, uh, game, game shows which are very relevant to, uh, to the Americans, to a modern life. One of them was uh, The Price is Right. Yeah. All things related to, to shopping, to consumerism. This is our daily life, you know. So, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, and a lot of this, uh, The Wheel of Fortune was another one as well. And mm. these shows really spread around the world, maybe up to 20 markets. That was big in the 70s and the 80s. And it was, they were very popular. And some markets were the most popular about game shows and programs, full stop. And the idea is that there's a yeah. basic format that has been tried and tested successfully in a market. And then when you sell it, it can be domesticated to suit mm. the needs of another market where perhaps the cultural interests are slightly different. Uh, you, everything from language and clothing through to mm. ideology can be localised. Yeah? Absolutely, the questions as well, exactly. Everything the questions in the game writing, show. The questions yeah. the language. Now, my but memory is that a talent quest that was on here, Opportunity Knocks, mm -hmm. with Huey Green, was one of the legal test cases for this in television. Yes. He sued maybe a New Zealand company? Yes, yes, not. yes. And, after, and ever since then, there's been a lot of debate and dispute about how really binding mm -hmm. the idea of the format sale is, because it doesn't really strictly meet all the notions of copyright, does it? Yes, it's a very interesting question. This is, this is the billion-dollar question. It's very yeah. complex. So this opportunity knocks was British, and oh, I think... Oh, Huey Green received a letter from the tax office. I mean, any royalties from this New Zealand program called Opportunity Knox? I had no knowledge of it. It was how it started, how the oh, program started how it began? rolling. How it began, the tax office so saying... Uh, they're always, the, they're always <laughs> the best researchers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you hiding something from us? <laughs> and uh, that's how it started, and uh, he lost. But it's, uh, it was a poor case. I've interviewed people in the industry, the... the, uh, yeah, the uh, the industry claims that the case knocked the industry back for several decades because, of course, you know, the judge disagreed with Yuki Green and said these, these are two different programs. But it's, yeah, I think what I've heard is that the evidence was very poorly presented. And then I've looked yeah. at some archives and also I have, you know, 
I like to, we need to delve deeper into the origins of Operation Knock. Some people say that the program existed in Canada, which is where he was yeah. from. Exactly. Now, so, so in this case, this is a case where the tax office says, "Are you getting revenue from this yeah. version of your program?" He says, "What version? Yeah. I've never heard of it." Then, having thought about it, he decides he would like some revenue exactly. from this yeah, version yeah, yeah, yeah. and says that the New Zealanders have actually appropriated it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it becomes a legal case which he loses. No, loves, yeah. And, yeah. and this is the late 50s or yes, 60s, like? I believe. The yes, 60s. 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It had the clapometer, I remember. Yeah. Uh, the mm. method of deciding how popular the various mm. acts were with the audience yeah, was this applause meter called the mm. clapometer, yeah, which yeah, I always yeah. thought was some kind of sexually transmitted yeah. disease measurement that uh, wasn't. Yeah, no, I, hate, I hated Huey Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is not, it has a very nice reputation, but I don't think it was a, yeah, he has a, <laughs> absolutely. But absolutely, talent shows go back to the radio age, age of yeah, radio to sure. the 40s, and I uncovered in the BBC archives, and so I have to say that I have to thank the staff there, because they opened some archives for me that had never been looked at looked because at before. there and were game shows. But and where can this be? F you've published this work, haven't yes, you? Yes, yeah, one article in Media Culture and Society. Yes, uh, called the Origins of a Global Trade, and there's right. one in European Journal of Communication called uh, the Making of an Entertainment Revolution. Right. Why explain in 1990s the format mechanism as a mechanism right. of exchange transfer to other genres. And that's an interesting question. When it does transfer to other genres, mm -hmm. for example, fiction, mm -hmm. you know? And Absolutely. I'm working on this now. So, uh, again, it started in the 70s. Uh, with the first, I mean, when the first big uh, format transfer was uh, uh, until this to a spot, which became only my family in the States. Now, that was a British script as that was um, brought there by Beryl Virtue. He was of course not a very famous uh, TV producer, and that became usual in my family. Was usual fighting bigotry and racism sure. and things like this. So they, that was the first one. Uh, I think uh, in fiction there are fewer formats because it's less mechanistic. If you mm. want to adapt a game show, you're going to get a bible, uh, which is seven hundred pages, which will highlight everything you need to know about the production of this game show. Lighting to the studio design to the questions, type of questions, to the attitude of the presenter, to how he or she should dress, and everything is laid out for you. Of course, in fiction, it's different. It's, it's a mm. format as performance. You, you, it's much more, much more subtle, much more difficult. And of course, the risk is a bit greater. So, there's a fewer formats, but once they work, they work very well in fiction. And uh, from a big recent one in the notice where the office. The office, which is just finished, just in finished, the US. And of course, yeah. much longer run in the US. I think they had nine seasons, yeah. as opposed to the UK, we had two series. I think the British could talk about series and the Americans would say mm. seasons. So nine seasons against two. Here, uh, Ugly Betty was a big one as well Huge. from Colombia. Yeah. Yeah. And the last, I mean, the last one it would be uh, Prisoners of War, the Israeli format, that became Homeland, which yeah. has been obviously, which is a bigger homeland. As which will be made in Latin America as well, and also Israel had one that was about a therapist. Yes, that, that was, was done in, treat, in, in, treat, in treatment. Yeah, which was uh, adapted by HBO yeah. in several uh, Gabriel Byrne yeah, uh, Central European countries with great success as well. So absolutely, and so uh, Israeli format is doing quite well now. 
in um, you know script what we scripted formats or scripted them. Yeah. So they do extremely well, but it's more difficult because obviously the person who does in treatment in uh, Hungary or uh, Poland will know you know as you know it's it's really uh, you need a talented writer. So it's di- different sets of department as well. Sure. And this is now really the formats have reached all the genres, including. Uh, fiction has become very popular. If you look at the uh, U.S. upfronts, quite a few of the scripted drama is is are in fact formats. Imported formats. Imported three from the U.K., one from the Netherlands, and one from Israel again. And actually, I think it was HBO had a show last season or the season before about this, where it actually had a British couple. Yes. Um, who are screenwriters who win a BAFTA and then get imported to Hollywood to localize it? Yeah, yes. With Joey from Friends Joey as from the imposed Friend. star. Hampson Gregg. Yeah. It's produced by uh, Hattrick, Jimmy right. Melville. Uh-huh. High School Episodes. Yeah. And they are shooting now the, the second season. Did thing. it make it to a second yeah, season? Yeah, yeah, it's coming to the... I oh, thought it was a third now, even third. Really? Because yeah. I must admit, I thought it was a little bit in-house. But there were so many yeah. jokes you needed to be yeah. part of the industry to understand, I thought. But there you go. There's a, there's a lot of funny stories of, of yeah, American mishaps has asked British writers to uh, mm. adapt, adapt British shows. And uh, there was 40 towers they tried three times. As they never to worked. Work. But it if you go worked, back, yeah. um, the, the number of French films that have been remade uh, by Hollywood is yeah. quite lengthy. You go back to the early days of sound, uh, Boudou Sauvé des Eaux, mm-hmm. right? Becomes, what was it, um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills yeah. or something yeah. with Nick Nolte, Absolutely, 50 yeah. years later maybe, yeah. right? Um, two Men and a Baby, or whatever it's called. That yes, was a French that was, yeah, film. Yeah, about, so, absolutely. Lady in Red, The Woman in Red, or whatever. Mm. That was uh, another yeah, one, yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting because people often think comedy mm-hmm. is the hardest of these to do mm-hmm. because its cultural effects, when they're linguistic, can be yeah, so yeah, local. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that French comedy would be something that gets remade. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think, in I, as in everything, I think you've got the language. And yeah. comedy is also a situation. Yeah. You know, a comedy is very if, if you bring two people with things as a quick quick pro quo or something like this. So I think once you've got the concept, yeah. then you can you can uh, adapt it and remember this 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 uh, two men and a baby. Yeah, I think it's just classic men having to deal with a baby, something <laughs> like this. It is the concept is funny because yeah. you have a lot of comedic situations. So once you take the concept everything asks Everything is based on a concept. Mm. A good show in prisons of war is a concept that happens to you if you're a prisoner, if prisoner of war for many years, you know. So what happens to your mind, you know, I think that's the key concept of this, you know. And a, a comedy will have a concept. And the office is a very powerful concept, you know, it's basically the, the you know, what happened to our lives in the office, you know, mm. the, yeah, mm. the absurdity and the, the, yeah, of our lives. And I think that's, translates well internationally but we have to speak the language of whichever market so I think this is why formats are really transnational because they always have a local element but always have a, a kind of universal element as well I was once hired by a <laughs> law firm or a couple of times hired by law firms to advise them on whether or not television programs that they had paid format money for. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, were 
in any way connected to rivals on other networks that were putting up similar shows where they had not paid format fees mm. as a means of blocking the other network's offering. Very so, you know, you're shown a British yeah. reality show that a big US network has bought the rights to and is remaking, and then you're shown something very similar that another network is making mm -hmm. where they haven't bought the rights and the network you're giving an opinion to wants you to say, oh yes, they're both ripping off, they're both ripped off or borrowing from the British original, but you paid for it, so yeah, go ahead and sue the asses of these other people. I don't think I was the right kind of witness. Every time I've been hired by a law firm to give expert testimony on this, I've never been called to the actual court case. Really? I write a report, they give me money, but they never regard me as a reliable witness. I think it's because they do very close investigations of your private life to see whether you're a reputable really? person. Oh yeah, before you testify. Because the big thing the other side wants to do is to indicate that you're not a credible witness. And you'd think this was just when you're dealing with, you know, drunken brain surgeons mm -hmm. who are giving expert witness evidence on something, but it's as, in a sense, every day a, a practice when applied to things like what we do. Mm. Yes. Mm. Another, yeah, another explanation beyond your reputation, I'm sure it's impeccable, is that because <laughs> there's a lot of cases settled out of court. Yeah. There's a lot of... Oh, this going on. I have to say, to go back to our earlier conversation on mm. copyrights, since the yeah. UE Green days, a lot, courts now are much more sympathetic to protection of TV formats. It's really absolutely a few cases. Of course, some jurisdictions are more in tune with the TV yeah. industry than others. I can cite Spain, Brazil. Oh, it's very difficult in the UK. But again, here you see there's a lot of debate about people think the industry is pushing for it and what I've learned is the industry is not really pushing for it mm. because nobody wants to know if how distinct is the voice from the X Factor from idols from pop stars I mean they'd rather have this they'd like it to be yeah. a little bit fuzzy absolutely you know I mean yes. the fuzziness yeah. suits a lot of people's needs you sure. know if you don't sure. want to people start looking too much Every time I'm told that X or Y is a badly drafted piece of legislation, I always think it's probably not. Uh, it was probably drafted that way in order to satisfy different requirements of business. Absolutely. Which yeah. are not always in sync and which would quite often like things to be a little obscure so they get the chance to have their day in court, as would lots of attorneys. Absolutely. So that's the case for the, the industry as well has, you know, you don't want to look too much in the depth about this, the origin of these formats. But I mean, global television now is a huge tumble dryer, and mm. people pick elements from it. You know, it's expected the format will be influenced by another format. You cannot come with a very completely new talent competition. If you come up with a new talent competition, it will nine tenths of it will come from we borrow elements from. Existing town competitions. Does this apply in things like, say, football? How football is covered? Mm -hmm. Are there any cases or are there any deals that way? Or is it the case that, all right, here are 22 people and the referee and the assistant referee, here's the crowd, here are the goalposts, that's all set in play by something that we can't claim? to own mm -hmm. and then when it comes to camera angles and commentary methods 
they're so generic that nobody could really make an intellectual yeah. property claim on them? Or does it apply in sport as well? You ask very probing questions. <laughs> Are things that in football, I'm not an expert on this, but what the Premier League can cover in terms of rights is the packaging, not the game of football itself. Right. But the, you know, the pa again, it is, there is a, I think, but I'm not an expert, mm. there's a format idea says we don't, you know, we, we're not selling you the game itself because that's a new, you know, sort of game of football, but we're saying, they are selling the, the this particular textualization of it. Exactly, How that's one thing the they do. I mean, football is a format yeah. because you have universal rules, it's a universal concept protected by FIFA. Mm. So they get the sports federations, and these are the rules, is how big the goalposts should be. But of course, people don't know about this. They don't care about the rules. What they cheer for is a local team. <laughs> so there is always, always this relationship between the local and the universal in football as well. So people don't, if, if you're in Chile or in Paraguay, you don't care about the rules. You always cheer. So football is always local. And the format is always yeah, local. Yeah, you yeah, always yeah. watch that's what's relevant. Even if the concept, the underpinning mm. is mm. global. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, I think that's really very much what happened now since the 1990s. Really, concepts travel wide and far, but you, you make them relevant. Whether it's a comedy or a game of football or something else. They're rendered culturally local and specific yeah, yeah. by both local manufacturers or mm. content creators or whatever term we use and by audiences, yeah, by yeah, spectators. Yeah. So Jean, tell me, how did you get interested in this stuff? Well, it's a good, I don't know how I came up to this. You don't, because yeah. I often don't know why I got yeah, interested in yeah. things, but I'm wondering if you do. I know how I started being interested in international communication because TV format, before TV formats, I was uh, wrote a book on international TV channels, which was a book that covered the very famous international TV channels like Discovery and CNN and the very obscure ones, which is what I like about this book. I cover everything like Travel Channel or something like this. And there's a lot of very small, I like this. I think media is also about the banal, you know, so about sure. I like this. So I cover a lot of this. And why is that, I mean, really simply, I thought I was quite, I, was, I wrote the book on the gold and the media and of course the goal was a French leader in the 60s, was a French president for that matter in the 60s, of course he really wanted to control television for national ends. So I mean, uh, television had, had to promote France, had to pre pretend France was a un un unified and united country and had to protect the president and so on and so forth. It was all about national policy. Of course, if you fast forward 30, two or three decades later, what's striking is the internationalization of television. This is how I started walking so, on. So, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I remember in the 60s, there was a cartoon about what would happen when, as was frequently the case, television signals would cut out. Mm -hmm. When I was young, the television set itself would fuck up and just stop mm -hmm. working, but also signals from television networks would cease to function. And there would normally be, if it wasn't a local problem to do with your television set, a sign put up by mm. the television network to explain what was going on. Mm. And the joke always was, the cartoon that I remember reading was, in the case of ORTF, mm -hmm. it would be, we interrupt this program while we find one that President de Gaulle likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. I mean, I wrote this book and there's a lot of anecdotes like this about what you thought a, a good documentary on French history should be. You know, looking at the big history with a capital H and not look at absolutely, definitely. So there was days, of course, that's 
obviously television now is a very international very global <laughs> medium what's also in, interesting about yeah. television because I, I'm a, a bit TV centric as well so I touch on the other media is that there's the huge growth of television in the last 20 years yes. this is a little bit hidden by the internet but let's not television is a is a you got more channels more broadcasters more pay TV t pay TV platforms more producers in more countries than ever and more tv sets more tv sets people spending more time watching television absolutely the incredible myth of the internet mm. uh, is that it is displacing television uh, whereas in fact of course the internet is becoming more like television and television is becoming more like the internet mm -hmm. but television is in its greatest period of expansion and the real story about technological developments in the media is satellite Mm -hmm. and cable. Yeah, That's yeah. the real technological yeah, yeah, change yeah, along with yeah. the importance of deregulation yeah, of markets. Yeah. But before we get on to all that, I'd love to go back, 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 as they say in baseball, to your De Gaulle book. Did you grow up in France? I grew up in Switzerland. In Switzerland. I know yeah, you went to yeah, university yeah. in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. So did French TV and did De Gaulle's influence on what, had, what was the formation of French TV have an influence on you growing up? Yeah, I think we watched a bit of French television in Switzerland, French-speaking Switzerland, we could watch two or three French channels. Mm. So it has, has an influence on me. Yes, probably. Yes, absolutely. We watch a bit of French television. Mm. We always had French television in, in yeah, uh, the same way the Irish would watch the BBC. In fact, the BBC was also watching the Netherlands and Belgium. Yeah. And uh, Radio Luxembourg was listened yeah. to here in London. Yeah. So in 68, Les Événements, mm -hmm. the great May 68 events, one of the things that I think often is forgotten in the mythology of those days is that in the French case, nationalistic television was one of the targets, wasn't it? Of yes. many of yeah. the protesters. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I remember they had a seven day strike on the ORTF and they would walk around La Maison to Cape Kennedy, which was around, which is around buildings, and walk around or within it. I can't remember exactly, but absolutely. I mean, the, one of the what was at stake was definitely the French television. No doubt about this. I mean, the RTF was a symbol of power. In fact, the when they built the building, uh, De Gaulle suggested to his uh, French to his minister, minister of information, that he should leave on the top floor of the building. <laughs> you know, this is what was about. There's no doubt about this. I mean, the opposition had little access to, but not so much. I mean, if you look at the news bulletin, out of half an hour, you'd have maybe five, ten minutes on the goal, and then you had to, you know, the news is completely controlled. There's no doubt about this. So it's not what we would call public service broadcasting. No, 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 it no. was an old-fashioned propaganda model. Uh, yes, I would call it just, yeah... Just before propaganda, maybe state television, state the softest state television. I, in the book, yeah, I have to. I'm walking a fine line. I don't think De Gaulle was authoritarian. It was a democracy, but it's a concept, it's a conception of democracy that is very presidential. Yeah. I mean, in Switzerland, very, very collegial, maybe a bourgeois democracy, or, you know. But I think in France, it's much more top down. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, what they call in the United States the imperial presidency. And yeah. one of the attempts made by every president uh, since Watergate has been to restore the imperial presidency that was partially, anyway, defanged mm -hmm. through the rise of administrative yeah. law in the post-Watergate era especially. I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on American I thought that the, the forefathers of the constitution wanted to kind of 
restrict the rights of the president. Oh yes, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. But the idea of the imperial presidency yeah. is to utilize what yeah, is yeah. there in terms of foreign policy and defense yeah, power, yeah. and then mobilize yeah. it in other spheres in the same way as the expansion of the power mm -hmm. of the federal government has occurred. You get this in almost mm -hmm. all big countries that have federal systems. Mm -hmm. They start out with the idea of the states coming together in a somewhat, you know, uh, <clears throat> conflictual way to form a national government, but always wanting to keep a lot of power to themselves. And then when you come up against big crises, big wars, big unemployment, pretty quickly the federal government accretes more authority to itself. Well, after you get an event like the First World War, the Second World War, the federal government becomes much more powerful after each. Governments don't like to give up power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, but in any event, there's the goal, and he provides this uh, re remarkable subject for your first book, and... Um, well, that was my second book. Oh, second book. I'm sorry. What was your, what was your first? <laughs> my one? first book was called The Invention of Journalism. Oh, I haven't I, read that one. Understand. Yeah, it was uh, my. Uh, yeah, I know. It uh, did quite well. Where I explain why I claim that journalism is an Anglo-American yeah. invention mm -hmm. and a 19th-century invention. I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad to say it provoked a debate because not everybody agreed with me. It was my thesis, but I said the techniques of journalism and journalism used as a commodity. Uh, and the techniques of news gathering, mm. the, and, and journalism as a discourse, you yep. know, as a discursive formation, that was what the idea was behind right. this, arose in the 19th century and was essentially an Anglo-American invention. Was the penny press, you know, getting away from power, realizing that the money was with consumers, with readers, and things like this. So I'm not denying news ex always existed, but not as an industry. And yeah. maybe not as a commodity. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I must apologise. I have actually read your mm. CV, so I should have been in a much better position to get the sequence right of your books. No, no. So, <laughs> so what was the response to the invention of journalism? I think it was good. It's, it's widely cited. I think my, mm. hopefully, my views mm. are being. This was well. I mean, I was influenced by Bourdieu. Mm. Uh, trying to talk about the constitution of the journalistic field, you know, mm. journalism as a field of with academic agents and actors being aware of being journalists, being self-reflective with, mm. with with standards, with norms and things like this. You know, so um, I think now it's more uh, more accepted. Some people have said, "Oh, it's a very restrictive definition of journalism," but again, you know, it's in other countries you have different. Brands of journalism, but I wouldn't call them forcibly journalism. You know, if 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 a lot of countries were very authoritarian in character, therefore mm. journalism was very propagandistic in tone, and uh, as it was the case in France up to the nineteen sixties or seventies. Mm. So I mean, it's it's really for me, you know, journalism is about it has to be it's about the technologies I behind journalism. Uh, it was a printing press, it was about the rotary presses, the popular press, about discursive techniques like the reportage, the news report, which has in obeyed to certain rules. The interview as well, the interview was invented probably in New York in the mid-19th century, you interview someone. And politicians at first, even in France in the late, early 20th century, were very, very reluctant, even in this mm -hmm. country. 
yeah, a guy called William Steed is trying to interview politicians and say, who do you think you are? You know, here's my speech, and you print it. And it's only progressive, progressive journalists saying, well, no, actually, I'm, we're not inserting the entire speech. They are my questions. And that was a power struggle between journalists and politicians. So all these things, the first unions as well, uh, and as also the mode of financing of, 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 of uh, newspapers. It came upon when newspapers were so big that political parties could not sub subsidize them, either secretly or probably sometimes openly. This where journalism is really living by their own means, being financed by sales, by advertising, by and so on and so forth. That's really, I think, what created journalism. And the fact is, news is a commodity. And that's, for me, it's a window from the mid-19th century up to today. And news is it still a commodity. You know, with all with the free sheets, with with the free online news. That's, I think that's what this concept is. This is what journalism. I think yeah, the, this long era for this discuss discursive formation that was fashioned by a network of factors, which now is disappearing again. So this is what is for me journalism: the discursive formations that existed for a period of time that may or may not disappear now, which is transforming now. Anyhow, a lot of bits of people claim you know. Journalism in crisis. I think journalism is changing. It's not about this. So this, this is what this book says, but this 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 thesis. I think it's. I don't know. I think it's <laughs> and going forward to now and the future, what do you see as the current state and likely near future of journalism? Because you're in suggesting that a lot of these economic preconditions are gone, yeah, yeah. in the same way as in the recording industry the emergence of bands like the Beatles mm -hmm. or the Rolling Stones or U2 can only happen between the 1960s and the mm -hmm. 1990s because of the way in which record companies mm -hmm. were transforming at that time and youth consumption patterns were emerging and certain technologies mm -hmm. were dominant. So just as there's a real shakeout in the music industry, we're seeing one of course in journalism, in, certainly in the global north. In the global south Newspaper journalism is still expanding. It is absolutely. very significantly, yeah, 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 yeah. but but here in the UK, there is a real threat to the profession. Certainly in the United States. So I wonder what you think will happen in what you see as the two cradles of contemporary journalism. Why well, it's a difficult question. I think you can distinguish different levels. You know, local journalism, maybe metropolitan journalism, and then you got international regional journalism. I think there's two different things and maybe different areas of journalism, it's clear that the business model has taken an arc. I think what a few uh, journalism outlets, journalist organizations have to reinvent themselves. So I think what, I mean, really, in general, I think it's a business of trust and credibility. That's what your business is. You People trust you, and if you're credible, then I think you have a source of income. But I think it's very difficult. I understand that one, how they, they're struggling. I don't have a question now to the uh, to uh, an answer to the question mm, of the viability sure. of journalism. But I think the fact is that journalism has a future. I think I'd feel more confident mm -hmm. if I were working at Associated Press or Reuters yeah. than if I were working at The Independent or uh, the New York Daily News. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think these traditional Agence France Press, yeah. these 19th century beasts mm -hmm. are just getting stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because Wire news is the future mm -hmm. on the internet. Mm -hmm. When I ask my students in, the, in California where they get their news from, and these are working class students, 
mostly first generation in college, mostly minorities. There are two sources. One is national public radio. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. Very yeah. interesting because they drive in the car. Yeah. And the only other radio they can get is Christian radio. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything yeah. that you don't already know. And Yahoo. Okay. And Yahoo is basically AP, Reuters, yeah, 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 yeah. Bloomberg. Absolutely, absolutely. It's from these wires, basically. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So yeah. it is interesting. Now, what took you from the invention of journalism to the invention of De Gaulle, or De Gaulle's invention oh, of television? Yeah, to me. It's very oh. flattering. No one, yeah. It's very flattering because no one really pays that close interest to my <laughs> career, quote unquote. <laughs> I'm here to show massive interest yeah. in your career. This is my task. I am the beneficiary of the 19th century invention of the interview, but I am the humble interviewer. <laughs> no, I'm very flattered. I mean, I don't know how to work uh, on the journey from uh, yeah. Yeah. How did you get interested in moving to television? Yes, no, I, I moved to what I wanted to assess was the impact of the state on media. Mm. And that was the, the question behind this. And the uh, World Bank had sent me to the Ukraine and Moldova. And the, this, the World Bank. The World Bank, yes. Yeah. And this newly uh, independent country had a, kind of molded a new constitution based on the Fifth Republic, uh, as you call it, imperial uh, presidency, and indeed, like you know, Putin like presidency as well. You know. yeah. I wanted to look at the impact of, of, of the state when the state has you know, really big. You know, role in public policy, mm. in audiovisual policy, and on political communication. What's the impact of the state on, and what what is the resulting you know, of? Mm. That was very interesting, and that's why I did this. So it's it's, it's a study on presi presidentialism and television. So that's why I did. it's very top down. I mean, the the, the the impact is not positive. I have to say, it's very top down. It's very elite driven. Sometimes we forget, I mean, you know, the kind of the, almost the democratic character of market-driven societies. I know it has issues, as you highlight them in your own work, you know, I highlight them in some mm. of my own work, mm. but presidentialism is very top-down, mm. it's very, you know, I ended up, television was in the, in the hands of very, very, very small, uh, shall I say, narrow-minded elites. So what we have now might be, I would probably call it better. Let's, you know, let's... Probably call it better now. So, um, well, the mixed what, market. This is why model, I know that. Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yes, absolutely. Which we have in the in the in the UK. So that's what I was looking at. at was this yeah. is how I moved from the Golden's and from the Gold to international television. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, now in Russia we have a situation, as I understand it, where the president controls one public broadcasting outlet, the prime minister controls another, yeah, and yeah. whoever holds which of those two roles yeah. does a vault farce in terms of his or her his up to now investment in these particular stations mm. and that is a real problem in terms of independence yeah absolutely no definitely doubt about it and it's interesting that the obama administration in the united states like the bush administration before it really doesn't know how to deal with the press they run away from the press obama really uh, yeah, very few know. yeah yeah press conferences at all really very very few oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny a few and george w bush really they don't know how to do it they don't know how to answer tough questions that are detailed policy questions, and they don't want to confront scandals directly. But can I tell you, this it illustrates perfectly my argument about journalism being an Anglo-American invention. De Gaulle and Holland made another 
for so long, the current president, he did a press conference recently. I think he addressed journalists for an hour, an hour and a half. And then they can ask some polite questions. Up to De Gaulle had pre-arranged questions. Now, you cannot do this in the States. I think the last president who did a press conference, in fact, the conference to the press was a talk to the press and half an hour was Johnson. He was criticized for this. So, of course, for Obama, has been much, much tougher. Yeah, no, as asked the difference between Anglo-American journalism, which is m whatever we say that issues, is much more independent than a lot of other yeah, journalistic traditions. Yeah, although I'd have to say I think yeah. that the British are much better at that than the Americans. Mm. The, the level of deference is appalling. Really? In the president. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a little different at the moment because of what's happening with Associated Press and the fact that we now know that Associated Press's records were taken by the government in order to try to evaluate the source of the leak to Associated mm. Press about a counter-terrorist action. And this has made the press call very, very angry. Ooh, gosh, so yeah. right now, in the last two weeks, we're seeing proper media activity. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say that in the majority of my time in the United States, I found it pitiful, actually, mm -hmm. in terms of its deferential attitude, failure to ask proper questions. But here, that doesn't happen. You do get proper questions asked, and they're not deferential. Mm -hmm. And I think it's partly because it's not a presidential yeah, system. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. But anyway, moving, <laughs> moving on from that, uh, we've got about a quarter of an hour left, if that's okay. I'd love to ask you about the transnational, international television mm -hmm. book that yes. you mentioned. Um, because that's a, that's a, I think I saw a copy of it out there mm -hmm. in the display case. And what were you trying to get at in that book? It's a good question. I was trying to study all the international channels that cross borders in Europe. Big and little. Big and little. Very famous to very unknown. Yeah. I was trying to look at the different strategies. I was trying to understand the connection with globalization. Mm something I don't do much in this book, I have to say, and look at the cultural impact of these channels, which, yeah, don't seem to me too, you know, important. I mean, if you look at a very good example, is Scandinavian countries, where they don't seem to have any issues with the local culture and things like this, and yet they've been importing these American or British channels en masse for the last 20 years. So, you know, I don't know about, you know, Americanization and all this, and the colonization of the mind. I mean, I don't know about this. I'm not sure about the cultural impact, but it's something I don't really look at the book. And the book is really about the setting up of this industry. And my argument in the book, there was a transnational turn in the 90s, where the first satellite channel started in the early 80s. Uh, for, for the first 20 years, were a bit quiet, or losing money, or closing down. It, it becomes a big industry in the late 90s, mm. and I call it the transnational turn. And now it's huge. I mean, if you look in this, in, in, you know, in this country or across Europe, you have an increasing amount of channels that are cross-borders. Again, in all genres, from news to comedy, that would be Comedy Central, to children's, to factual entertainment, documentaries, mm. every, every genre has international music, television, MTV. Mm and many other channels, so on and so forth. So that's really the, the internationalization, transnationalization of TV distribution in, 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 this, in Europe. 
as a detail, yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 not. Yeah, it's it's really more, almost an industrial look take on these channels. I look at the different strategies because you can go very global, like BBC World News, or you can localize a lot, like Disney or MTV. So you have different strategies according to the genre, different sure. players as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the ones I'm always interested in is CNBC mm -hmm. because CNBC, which is a business cable channel that is derived from NBC in the United States, has CNBC, Africa, mm -hmm. Asia, yeah, Europe, yeah. you name it, plus of course associated websites. Now, a lot of this proliferation comes because of deregulation, a lot of it because of new technology as we've mentioned, some of it because people love television just like mm -hmm. you and I do. Uh, Although you didn't look at cultural impacts, you're more interested in the industry's view of this. What do you think should be the role of democracy in all of this? Should there be a role for the state in regulating the proliferation of these channels? No, I think for the state, yes, you may want to look at the standards. You know, for me, maybe the the uh, the quality, maybe the quality issues, and uh, maybe the. Uh, the moral standards of these channels, you know, things like this. But apart from this, I can't see too much need for within the protection of the law. You know, you have to fight against racism and sexism and things like this and issues like this. Uh, fighting against obscenity and pornography within this broad remit, I think it's, it should be people should be free to watch whichever channel they want that to watch. Want. So, uh, so, so wherever wherever they come, they from. come from, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, yeah. for me, it's this this. Uh, there, freedom is very important also the freedom to be an entrepreneur if you're a tv station or a broadcaster you have the freedom to expand otherwise yeah absolutely so what should happen let me give you an extreme case but one that was very much on the minds of regulators from the earliest days of broadcasting mm -hmm. as you know what happens if an argentine business guy or let's say carlos slim the wealthiest mm -hmm. man in the world one of the biggest owners of the New York Times, with lots of business interests in Argentina and friends there. What if Carlos Slim buys ITV and decides to cover the Malvinas mm -hmm. or the Falklands in a way that is opposed to overt British policy? Yes. And at the point where, in fact because of oil, but mm -hmm. supposedly for other reasons, Argentina and Britain are sizing up one another for another potential war. Mm -hmm. What is the role of a state when you have an Argentine entrepreneur owning ITV and saying to the news division, this is the story we're going to tell? Mm -hmm. Well, there must be a law somewhere in case of emergency or for, for reasons of national security, you can stop. No, but because yeah. you know, historically, yeah, yeah. the reason why lots yeah, yeah. of countries said only local citizens yeah. can own radio stations and television networks is because of war. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you, yeah, as I'm sure still be the case in this country. Yeah. yeah. Treason. Yeah. But I mean, the Carlos Salim must be a rational actor. Now, you know, if he would do this with RTV, RTV's shares would collapse. <laughs> exactly. No one would watch yeah, exactly. I mean, Well, but you know what's interesting about <laughs> Carlos Slim is that in the true clientelist uh, method of Latin American politics, mm -hmm. he gives money to the left. He gives no, money to the yeah. leftist newspapers. Really? Yeah. yeah He's yeah, happy to. Yeah, yeah. You have lots of money. Don't write about telecommunications monopolies. Mm -hmm. Write yeah, about yeah, yeah. the struggle of the indigenous. Mm -hmm. Write about the struggle of queer people. That's all fine. Mm -hmm. Write yeah. about 
problems with the attempt to change the labour law to liberalise, supposedly. Just don't talk about the telecommunications monopoly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? well, I'm not surprised it rings a bell, you know. <laughs> I can cite other countries that it happens. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so yeah. They, are, they are often rational and, and publicly minded people who realise that their self-interest is served by collective interest mm -hmm. up to certain points. Yeah, yeah, up to a certain <laughs> point. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. And then it's different. But, yeah, no, I, I wanted to give what seems like a silly imagined case but it's not silly in the sense that that was what informed the whole yeah, notion yeah, of who yeah. should control yeah. ITV, the BBC, CBS. You know, mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch had to be transformed into a US citizen overnight yeah, yeah, yeah. because he'd bought so much of Fox. Yeah. The reason that the Mexicans could be kicked out of owning Spanish language television in the US was that they weren't citizens. Yeah. These are live issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this country was not a. I mean, I remember when Murdoch bought the Sun and the New. And News of the World. News of the World in 69. Yeah. I think there's a bit of rumble, but not that much. And then you had the Times, of course, the Sunday Times, 81. But I think it was quite a rise, I think, yeah. I mean, there's some foreign owners of newspapers in this country. I think the Independent is in Russian hands. Uh, in the hands the of a man who on television beat up another man. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we can I watch know, Mr. Yeah. Lebedev on yeah. YouTube, should we? Yeah, yeah, and Evening Standard as well, so absolutely. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be cause for concern, but yeah. I think it's better, you know, I mean, if really you try protectionism, mm. I think consumers always stand up. There are countries like France, there's a very, the elite use the excuse of national interest to have a very cosy mm. moral mm. and ideological mm. monopoly on the country. Mm. That, I don't think it works very well. Now, what would you see, if any, is the difference between regulating a newspaper and regulating a television station? Because Murdoch never had any problem legally with owning newspapers mm -hmm. in the United States. It was only once he got into the broadcast medium that it became a problem mm -hmm. in regulatory terms. And we've just seen here, in the fallout from the Leveson inquiry into press ethics, newspaper journalists and proprietors saying we do not wish to be regulated like television is and like radio mm -hmm. is because we're special we're different we have a unique role and we don't need it mm -hmm. and we had some people in television and radio saying hang on a minute you got videos on your website <laughs> you've got videos on your website uh, you're selling all kinds of oral and video mm -hmm. texts and what's more, it's not hurt us having this regulation that says you've got to have some children's content mm. or you can't have people saying four-letter words until 10 o'clock at mm. night or whatever it is. So do you, what's your take on that when we see so much technological and industrial convergence yeah. of these things? Is there a difference? I think only for as far as terrestrial broadcasters go because they've got you know, something that a terrestrial frequency is something that is, is a public good. And, you know, of course, if you're on ITV or even Channel 4 and 5, you, know, you are a terrestrial broadcaster and you are available on absolutely all the platforms and you have universal access. So there is a public service element in broadcasting. And I think that they have some responsibilities come with it. So I, I, I make an exception for public service broadcasters when in fact most most uh, terrestrial channels. So I think, yeah, it's slightly different, but not for pay, for, you know, pay TV channels, cable and satellite and, and newspapers. I think that's... Uh, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any special case for. It. What about saying that it's partly to do with the effect of the medium? Mm -hmm. People arguing that television irrationally affects people's thinking. Mm -hmm. 
whereas print requires more cogitation. Because I think mm -hmm. this is another factor that's very relevant to the anxieties over one kind of medium versus another. And a lot of this is about children. Mm -hmm. What children yeah. can and can't, should and must, hear and see or not mm. see, versus reading, which is deemed to be a more complicated mm. task. Yes, absolutely. Maybe it's for children you need to protect more television in terms of advertisements, the type of advertising we have. I mean, you know, we need to look at, you know, what, mm. what definitely what children watch and it's probably more probably different from, from newspapers. Mm. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think it's, it's partly about the idea of a public resource, as you say, but it's mm -hmm. partly about moral panics to do yeah, yeah. with audiences. Okay, well, if we can finish up, I had one more question for you, and, maybe, and please feel free to drop in anything else you want. Uh, formats we began with, and they're what you're working on now. What do you think are some of the big future issues that are going to come at us, those of us who are interested in communications questions? What do you see as the landscape when we, when we look out of this window together in 10 mm -hmm. years' time, no doubt visiting mm -hmm. <laughs> somebody else? What will be the cultural industry backdrop to this city? Well, I think it'll be... I wish I had a few minutes to think about this, but I think it's the connection between brands, contents, and technology. That's mm -hmm. the interplay that's being played out. And increasingly, I think with more intimate connections between brands and contents, and some people might find a bit uncom uncomfortable with this. There's no doubt that the advertising industry is increasingly funding programming. Oh, you've got product placements as well. Brands always want a more intimate conversation with contents. Mm -hmm. I think it's what, what will shape the, 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 the future. It goes beyond product placement. Product placement is only it goes into core funding. What is the sum of the I'm sure that's what it is here. Mm -hmm. This is about the core funding. You know, so this is a broadcast magazine that Jean has just handed me for the 3rd of May 2013. And it has wonderful variety speak type vocabulary as a headline. <laughs> yeah. C4 in Group M Ent Copro Deal. <laughs> you always need to uh, decode <laughs> these things, but yeah, it's saying this is part of WPP and increasingly. Which is a very big, a big advertising, advertising group, absolutely. Yeah. And they have a, a content financing division. Right. And that's increasing, and this increasingly be the case. I mean, uh, so can, can you it, explain to us what product placement is? Because some, I should say, there are listeners in 50 countries. So a lot of people mm -hmm. like you are not listening in their first language. Mm -hmm. But also, there are different countries that have different rules about product yeah. placement. Some people won't even be used to it. It was illegal in this country. Yes, until a few years ago. Now it's yeah. barely legal. Barely legal. No. Barely legal. Yeah. So instead, basically, in a soap opera, Connection Street, yeah. instead of having a bank, you'll be some bank or you know you, so you introduce them as opposed to being a car will be some car you know that's like we get in the yeah, james bond exactly movies. yeah people have seen the, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. So, so this is in to get away from people of, yeah. being able to run away from advertising yeah yeah, yeah. But, but that's only part of it exactly right? i think this yeah. is more down in terms of funding you know that's really what is because of course it's very difficult advertising the, the, the 32nd advertising slot is kind of you know it's not really doing, but it's still doing strong. But I see 
the industry is always looking at other financing, other ways of financing. So we've got the new platforms as well on YouTube. How do you finance content on YouTube, on, on other you know video sharing platforms, on the internet, and so on and so forth. So I think this is the interplay between brands, between content providers and content producers, and technology with a different platform. And I think this is this triangle where you know data mind of will shape the future of of, of media and um, entertainment media i think news is protected you cannot sponsor news you're gonna we, this is well established so let's put news aside and this is this this i think that's how it will shape uh it'd be increasingly global there's no other about this i mean formats are here to stay um all the genres are here to stay so it's very very transnational very even more borderless than it is now it's all about IP, it's all about intellectual property, it's all about rights, who is controlling rights, it's all the battles being fought on an everyday basis. It's about you know rights control, who controls the right to the content. But I think I'd go back to my three my triangle, you know, brands, content and technology and platforms. And that's what will shape the media of the next decade and make it look very different. Well, Jean Chalabi, thank you very much for this. Thank you very um, much for. I would me. like you to come back into the pod in a little while next time you have a book out, perhaps, to talk about it. Can we do that? I will do it. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thank you.